I mean, just fundamentally, I think it's how some people are wired and not everybody's wired this way. But I remember when I bought my first house, I thought, well, if I can just get to 10 houses, like I've, I'm set. And then you get to 10 houses and <laughs> and as soon as you get there, you enjoy it. Like, I don't even know if you enjoy it because now that you have 10, you need 20. And it's like, you never really arrive at where you think you're going to arrive to. The, the journey kind of is the destination. I figured that out pretty early on that every time I kind of set my life is like, if I can just get to this point, everything will be okay. Or I will have done what I needed to do you really just realize that that's just another step in the journey. I think if if the journey ended, we wouldn't see companies like Amazon and Apple and all these things. They would have ended way before. Right. Um, and that's kind of the entrepreneurial spirit is like it, it never really ends. Welcome to The Climb. I'm your co-host, Michael Moore. Today, we will dive deep inside the mind of a man transforming the real estate landscape of Fort Worth and beyond. Meet Chris Powers, founder of Fort Capital, an amazing family man, with quotes like, we're just going to need faster horses, don't buy all the land first, and humility is the ultimate superpower. This podcast is one you will listen to more than once. Listen to The Climb. Chris Powers. Welcome to The Climb. Thank you for having me. It's been uh, fun watching this get started. Well, uh, I can. I think I can speak on behalf of our co-host, Bob Wirma. You know, he and I came up with this idea uh, about 90 days ago, but I was preparing for this this morning and looked back in my notes, and it was the fall of 2019 that I started really listening to your podcast and set a meeting with you. And so, um, you know, I think from both of us, you're kind of the the spiritual founding father of our podcast. So <laughs> we're you. excited to have you on and uh, look forward to an engaging conversation this morning. Let's step back and, and talk about, you know, Chris and not so much where you are today and where you're going, but let's, let's dive back a little bit. Born in El Paso, came to TCU, kind of walk us through the beginning stages of, of Chris Powers. Yeah. So I was born in El Paso, Texas. My mom, lived there her whole life. My grandfather had lived there pretty much his whole life. So El Paso runs very deep uh, in my family. Lived in Lubbock for a few years. My dad was a uh, practicing attorney for 13 years. And then at 37, uh, decided he wanted to become a doctor. So stopped practicing law. We moved to Lubbock so he could attend uh, medical school at Texas Tech. We moved wow. for one year to Connecticut to do his first year of residency. Moving Texans up to the Northeast probably wasn't the best decision. <laughs> we we did one year and we moved back to El Paso to finish and I finished high school there. Uh, I graduated uh, high school a year early. So I accepted my, my letter to TCU uh, when I was 16. Came to TCU when I was 17. Played a lot of golf in high school. I cherish El Paso. It's where I get a lot of probably my values and uh, it's an awesome place. Came to Fort Worth in 2004 to go to TCU and I've been here ever since. TCU was incredible for me like it is for a lot of people. College, I met a ton of people. I started my business. I uh, got to stay in Fort Worth after where I met my wife. Been married for six years. I have a three and a half year old and a about to be one year old, two daughters. So, yeah, life's pretty good. I just wanted to ask one question because it was really intriguing to me. So, tell me real quick. Your father just says, "Okay, I'm done with with being a lawyer. I want to go be a doctor." Like, what made him <laughs> do that? I mean, that's that's like pretty wild. That's about as wild as it gets. And when you're a young kid, I was seven when we just when we went to medical school in Lubbock. And I guess you just your dad tells you that that's what you're going to do. And you just maybe think that's like a normal thing that people do. And uh, I'm now 33. I've met a lot of people and I've never met anybody else on the planet that's done it. His dad was an attorney. Uh, so my dad grew up in the Northeast. Uh, he was um, from Rhode Island, went to Virginia, then went to Harvard Law. 
and at Harvard wanted to really always wanted to do like an internship in Texas or one of his summer Mm -hmm. deals in Texas. And he had a roommate from El Paso. He moved to El Paso and that's where he met my mom over the summer and ended up moving there. But I don't think he ever really wanted to be a lawyer. I think his dad was a lawyer. And I think a lot of people fall into that trap of my dad does it. I don't really know what else to do. And I honestly, now looking back on it, I give him, um, while it's a crazy thing and it's not something I would recommend everybody do, uh, as I get older, I really uh, admire him for really being willing to say, like, this isn't what I love doing and making such a drastic change to do something that he would be happy doing. He had always wanted to be a doctor. And even at 37, you know, he's just become a partner at a law firm and everything. He just said, like, this isn't going to be fulfilling for me the rest of my life. And we did it. And so, again, as weird as it was, and, uh, you know, we could have a whole podcast on what it's like to go to medical school when you're 37. It's something I really admire him for is really just kind of doing what makes him happy. I think there's uh, a lot of people that probably don't ever make a big change because they're kind of keep the status quo or um, so not something uh, I knew at the time, but something I've learned as time goes by. Do you draw down on that, though, as as you're making decisions at Fort Capital and you've got to pivot or maybe launch into something new? I mean, do you do you see yourself reflecting on your dad's ability to go this in the right direction for me? I'm I'm changing everything. I'm moving my family. I'm. Yeah, no, I do. I think especially during like uh, we can talk about kind of covid and that experience, but. I think a lot of life is you're kind of in your own head telling yourself your own story and, you know, you you look around and uh, what other people are doing. So you kind of anchor into that, like there's not a lot of other people that make changes or and then you kind of keep telling yourself that story. And I think it's probably something that just comes with age is like you only live once. Life is finite. It could be gone tomorrow. Being part of YPO has, has been huge, and we do a lot of these exercises. One that I'll never forget that we do every couple of years is, um, and I would I recommend everybody do it, is imagine you're at your 80th birthday and your wife, your kids, and your coworkers have all come to enjoy your 80th birthday. And your wife is going to give a speech, your kids are going to give a speech, and one of your coworkers is going to give a speech. And you have to write out each person's speech. What are they going to tell you on your 80th birthday? And when you look at life uh, backwards like that and you think of what do you want them to write, you don't want them to write, you know, I never saw my dad because he was always working. Uh, My wife, like it was he, he made a lot of money, but, you know, I never saw him. So it didn't really matter. Your coworkers or, you know. And when you're put in that frame of mind, it makes you um, think a lot and it puts you in a perspective of like, what am I doing now that I don't want to be written about when I'm 80? Um, it's just a powerful way to kind of look at life. And he certainly did that. No, I love that. I've had a, uh, a pretty spiritual, reflective morning. Woke up this morning realizing that my youngest daughter is 12. Yeah. And uh, like you, I have two daughters, but it, um, you know, just sitting through thinking like, oh my God, she's been here for 12 years. You know, what have I been doing to influence who she is today and who she's going to become? It's impactful to think about that. And uh, daughters are pretty special. They're awesome. They're the best. and, and, And Mike, to like that point too, I think one of the things that, you know, we've talked a lot over the years of knowing each other. And then in, even as we translate and think about what we're thinking with, you know, some of the guests on our podcast is like, we're moving so fast these days and there's so much going on in our world. So like, you know, Chris, I mean, maybe the question to you is like, how do you kind of slow down and think about that stuff when you got, you know, you're running a company, you're trying to figure out the balance of time with family and kids. And, and then also, you know, as you're trying to write that kind of legacy, like, I mean, there's so much going on. So how do you keep that front of mind and slow down and make sure that it's always there? Yeah, it's a great question. It's probably something that, you know, had we done this two or three years ago, I probably would have answered different and two or three years before that, probably even more different. Well, I think the thing that I've always, it's come natural to me is there's a lot of people that have done what I want to do. 
and they're just people and they exist in this world and we call them mentors or uh, people we look up to is uh, I've always found it just supernatural that if there's something I'm trying to get done, the best way to get started in doing that is by finding someone who's done it and done it really well and then just kind of building a relationship and um, hearing from them. And so on the kind of question of balance and how to keep it all together, uh, that was something that started becoming really important to me probably right when I turned 30. 30 is kind of, a, I guess, a number. I'm 33 now. And a gentleman local here named Pete Chambers um, is someone that We've had breakfast every Friday, and he's uh, he really started teaching me about doing things intentionally now that I wouldn't regret later in life. And he's sold his business. He's part of a group called the Halftime Institute, which traditionally works with folks that um, have either retired or getting ready to retire, have done uh, well in business, um, you know, by business metrics, they've done well financially. Uh, They thought they were doing everything right their whole life by supporting their family and come to find out they they get to that like point they always wish they would get to. And they kind of look back and they didn't really meet their kids, you know, their wife and that wasn't really there. Their coworkers, you know, while they hung along, it was never a great relationship. And they they end up with like a lot of regret thinking all along they were just doing the right things. And so you know, we talked about that early on and um, it took a long time of just talking about it, but he's helped me to really just realize like, you're only going to live once. Staying an extra hour in the office isn't going to change your life, Um, but spending an extra hour at the pool with your kids might. And it's just putting it all in perspective. And I would say, I say it like I have it figured out. I constantly am challenged with it daily because the world is moving quick. The pressures of running a business are high, but I think it's just like anything in life. You have to practice at it. You have to be intentional about it. And talk is talk, but you know you kind of got to live it out. So, I think for me, the the biggest kind of learning experience so far is just being super aware that balance you find in really the most successful people. And successful, maybe three years ago for me was defined as like a huge business that makes you know lots of money and supports employees and something I can bring home to the family. And really success in life is when you've taken care of your family, your faith in, in business and kind of all of it together. And I guess it's more just a mindset and being aware of it. And I don't think, I think a lot of people don't become aware of it till way later in life. Yeah, that's great perspective. You know, as we think about our mission with this podcast to, to talk about crossroads and defining moments, preparation, and again, going back to the the two daughters thing. And, and, you know, again, I was being very reflective this morning, but in reading up a little bit, there was an article about, and this is, this is personal. So if we yeah. don't want to go there, it's okay. Um, there was an article about what I took away from it was things just happen for a reason. Yeah. And, and your in-laws had made a donation to the NICU mm-hmm. at Cook yeah. before your daughter had to be there. Yeah. So if you don't mind just sharing a little bit yeah, about be happy that to. would be impactful. Yeah. So everybody's always like having a baby's most exciting time, your first child. We had a little bit of a different experience. Um, my wife, unbelievable trooper, went on bed rest at 20 weeks um, and was in the hospital for six weeks. Could basically get up to go to the restroom, but um, other than that, had to be kind of flat on her back. And we had a daughter born at 26 weeks, uh, 14 weeks early. You know, we're not on video, but I could show you a picture of my wedding ring uh, would slide all the way down her arm, up almost up to her shoulder. One pound, five ounces, spent four months in the NICU. Everything you, I guess, think is important in life, like one, the day she was born, it was uh, it was great, but it was also the, probably the scariest day of my life. Yeah, I haven't talked about it in a while. But you bring a one and a half pound baby uh, into the world and who like the odds for anybody listening of a baby living a full life is pretty, pretty low. Three and a half years later, she's inc- doing incredible. You would never know she was born early, but those four months 
it's just another kind of impactful moment of like what's important and watching this little resilient child like grow and can, you know, I, I remember thinking she'll never hit three pounds. Like that was such a big deal. And yeah, it was really tough before all that business was, um, where I spent all my time and I ended up spending four months pretty much in a hospital or at my office. I don't know, it was a critical moment. The the child healthcare that Cooks delivers and that they're able to do with kids now is is incredible. And even uh, crazier is my brother-in-law is now going to be a neonatologist, which is interesting. But yeah, my in-laws had made a donation to the hospital that provided some technology that really helped advance the neonatology. And sure enough, they didn't know it, but their granddaughter was going to be one of the first babies to use it. That's it's crazy. I was just going to ask, Chris, you know, when when you go through those things and, you know, we all have people in our life who go through, you know, difficult things like what, like, where did you find that strength to go through that? I mean, I can only imagine emotionally how you were and then like providing that strength to your wife too. like, where did you find that? Uh, one, my wife, she was a trooper. Uh, she, That's awesome. she was she was really positive. I don't know. She had a calmness about her that was easy to draw off of. I was probably trying to hold it together, but she was incredible. Faith, you know, I'm a believer in the Lord. I'm a Christian. I've probably become a stronger Christian over time. I haven't, it hasn't always come natural. Um, and then just a lot of good people, but I will tell you it's, it's not easy. And and then, like I said, it's just watching my daughter. It's like, I'm not going to be the the daddy that's crying while I have a two-year or two-pound baby that's, you know, I'm not saying, f- really fighting every day for the first two months of her life to kind of kick it into gear and get it going. So that in and of itself is inspirational. No, thank, thank you for thank sharing, you, man. Yeah, that's really, awesome. thank you. The, my, you bet. My oldest daughter, who's now, you know, 14 going going to be a a freshman at trinity valley in the fall not quite that early but i think four and a half weeks early yeah and bringing a a kid into this world is hard enough yeah and then you get blindsided by wait a minute they're they they need more time before they get here um you know from a from a defining moment i mean it's like i can go back to the level of concern and stress and and just chaos and it makes the hardest day at work yeah. and what we do like are you kidding it's me nothing. today was easy yeah. right like the, so that's the thank you for sharing that's that's great perspective and michael you know it's funny like is we've had these all these different conversations with folks and chris you know i heard this from you like your first thing was like where do you find that strength and you said well i found it I found it from my wife. And I think one of the resounding themes that we've heard from a lot of conversations is, you know, that importance of their partner in life and yeah. how they rely so heavily on that. So maybe, you know, if you're you're good to share a little bit about, you know, how you and your wife kind of work through things together and how that kind of complements into your career as well. Yeah. I think Charlie Munger and like Warren Buffett always say the 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 first best business decision you'll ever make is who you marry. It's so true. It's so true. Like if you <laughs> if you're running a business or you own a business, it's taxing on them. You have to have someone that supports you and wants to see you succeed and uh, support your dream. And so I couldn't imagine, you know, if we were at odds on that, that would be very tough. Then my grandfather always used to tell me marriage is hard at best. It's it's hard, especially when you start having young kids, when you live with anybody your whole life. It's hard. At the same time, that's why it works and that's why it's awesome. Um, you, I can tell my wife anything as time gone has gone by. Um, another thing that, you know, just somebody told me early on is like, you know, always ask your wife her judgment on something because if you're bringing on a business partner or, or somebody, he would always say, um, go to dinner with his wife and him and then just enjoy dinner and, and let your wife kind of tell you what she thought about the dinner because she's going to see something you're not going to see. Always. And just as time mm-hmm. goes by, I, I rely on her and she puts up with with me in late nights and, um, you know, COVID. I wasn't getting home till nine o'clock at night for probably a month and a half straight. 
But the other part, I think I continuously have to remind myself is finding ways to show her I'm appreciative of it. Um, It's easy to take the role of like, well, I'm working hard. That's my job. And again, you get to your 80th birthday and it's like, yeah, you worked really hard and we never went on a date. We never did a vacation, you know, all those things. At the end of the day, you're not you're not collecting brownie points at home, just working harder necessarily, if that makes sense. 100%. And, you know, their innate ability to just call your own bullshit. I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable how fast they can cut through it and go, Michael, Chris, Bob, like, what are you talking (laughs) about? For sure. And you guys know this. I mean, you, you're you're running your companies now and there's not, when you, when you run a company, it's funny because most people won't call you on your bullshit. Right. Um, It's, you know, I don't want to say the higher up you get, but people don't call you on your bullshit. And then you get home after not being called on it all day and they're willing to like pound it right at you. And sometimes it's hard to, you know, it's hard to take it with humility and understand it. But my wife has no problem calling me (laughs) on my bullshit and God God bless her for it. You know, Chris, it's so funny you say that because I can't tell you how many times I've come home and I I tell uh, my fiance on ice, I say, well, here's what's going on. And I'm all fired up about it. And, you know, there's all kinds of anxiety or stress around whatever the situation is. And I explain it to her and she goes, well, why don't you just do this or say this? And I'm like, holy shit. Yeah, you're right. Like, this is a lot easier than I just made it out to be. Yep. It's it goes back to that kind of story you tell yourself inside your head right. and you kind of keep building on it. And yeah, all you're really doing is like it's fictitious. Almost the story you tell yourself uh, sometimes is it's way bigger deal. It's like any hard conversation. The hardest part is just getting to the conversation. Then you have it and you feel like you let the weight of the world off your shoulders. Um, So. I love that. Um, Well, diving back in, Chris, to, to what you built, right? I mean, again, the story of you, one thing we kind of pivot into this on in, in the podcast we've done previous to this one is like, there's the saying of, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Yeah. But then you can take that further and say, it's not what you know, it's who knows you. Yeah. And I've just been, is an outsider looking in, but someone that is so invested in Fort Worth and now to the point in my career of, you know, making sure I'm doing everything I can to give back to this great city too, right? Yeah. Like you've transformed an entire segment of our city yeah that didn't have a lot going on mm. i mean i had to drive past it <laughs> to get to shady oaks yeah. but it, it was it didn't have a vision so yeah. talk to us about how you how you got there and and what you want people to know about how you define that and then you know ultimately where is it heading yeah i had two wonderful parents both very loving they were a great model of of a marriage I had everything I wanted growing up. Doesn't mean we had all the money in the world. Uh, when my dad went to medical school, it was kind of a reality change. We were been a lawyer. My mom was from El Paso. He had been a partner. You know, we were kind of on the up and up. And then you go to a situation where in medical school, you're making no money for four years. And then in residency at the time, I think he was making thirty to 35000 a year with two kids and a wife. It was a really great period, even though I was young, you know, they're like in, in medical school, going out to Rosa's Cafe one time a month was like a big deal. And those those kind of roots were just always in me. So the entrepreneurial spirit of like, you know, I didn't have a huge allowance. I didn't get, you know, everything I wanted. But my dad was always like, if you'll, you know, go mow the lawn, if you'll wash cars, if you'll do et cetera, et cetera, you know, we'll get you a baseball glove or whatever. And that kind of, once I got into my teens, I started selling golf clubs on eBay um, before eBay was really a thing. This was like in the early 2000s, basically. And when I got to TCU, I met a guy, again, kind of who you know, a guy named Adam Blake, um, who had just won Entrepreneur of the Year. And he was buying houses around TCU and he taught me how to buy houses around TCU. And I started with 
basically a zero down loan, 3% down, 6% cash back at closing. This yeah. was 04 before the, the real estate recession. Yeah, I was recession. gonna say. <laughs> that doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> there was a day when you could be 17 years old with no credit or history and, and get a loan. Um, and started buying rental properties. And I formed a website called rentbytcu.com, which at the time, that was still kind of a novel idea. People weren't going online to rent their, their houses. Uh, started managing properties and really didn't start it thinking that real estate was like my forever career. It was more of a college thing. The market was really good. And then, I don't know, I kind of always assumed I'd probably go to like Wall Street or something and get some investment banking or whatever. That seemed like a, a big job back then. And then 08 hit right as I was graduating. And um, I ended up sticking with it. Didn't really have an option. I had these houses. I had this company. I hadn't really planned. Even if the market hadn't crashed, I'm still not sure how I would have gone to Wall Street with what I had already built here. But Right before that crash, I got a line of credit, which really kind of was a pivotal moment, a uh, revolving line of credit. And when it crashed, it allowed me to go start buying foreclosed houses basically with cash. And I mean, I could take you through the, the whole series, but fast forward 16 years, we're now, we have 22 employees. Uh, we have about $450 million of assets under management. Um, raised over a hundred million dollars of equity, but I haven't done it all. I've, the team I've built around me is, is exceptional. Um, and to your point on, on Fort Worth, just being here in Fort Worth and being a small company started developing around TCU and, uh, then went down into the West seventh area. And you mentioned Shady Oaks. I would always kind of had started doing deals that were uh, buying unentitled land, entitling it, and then selling it to developers that would transform a whole area. And that's where I started kind of figuring out how areas changed um, and would drive to Shady Oaks all the time in this spot along the Trinity River. Uh, it was just astounding to me that it's a beautiful part of the city. It's flanked by the river on three sides. It's between you know, kind of River Crest and Westover and uh, Crestwood and Monticello and Arlington Heights and Westworth Village, all these great places to live. Um, but there was just this area that um, just probably hadn't been given the attention that it needed. And so we raised some money. And to say I had this huge vision really early on would be uh, not telling the truth. We just thought, okay, we could buy a bunch of land and we kind of had the game plan of how we could get it rolling and what turned into kind of a let's do a couple developments and buy a bunch of land turned into we we bought a bunch of land and really became a master developer and kind of figured it out as we went we almost bought too much land nobody wanted to come in and compete because we owned all the land uh lesson number one if you want to if you want to bring in other people don't buy all the land uh first and Fort Worth's given a ton to us and the city's an incredible place. I mean, you never meet somebody from Fort Worth that doesn't love living here. And we um, turned in, uh, we turned kind of a big land play into this big development. And uh, five years later, we've built or we've been a part of 2000 apartment units under construction. We have a senior living facility coming over 125 townhomes. We've built office buildings, retail, and we've really kind of built a little micro city over here on the west side of Fort Worth. And uh, we're six years into it. That over time has brought in other people that are now uh, doing their projects. And um, I really think over the next 10 to 15 years, you'll see this whole side of the city completely transform uh, for the better. And it's been the most challenging project I've ever worked on. It's been a lot of sleepless nights developments really really hard especially in an era of social media and now people can congregate in chat rooms on next door to talk about the neighborhood people are okay with good news bad news change is always met with confrontation and so uh while it's been super gratifying and i think it's great for the city and un and an unbelievable positive i think some of the challenges uh, that you just face when you're changing a neighborhood is, you know, the resistance to change and things of that nature. And so we've tried to be 
a leader, we've tried to do the right thing. Um, you can't make everybody happy in development. Um, but I'm, I'm really proud that, you know, for decades to come, I'll be able to look on this area and, uh, know that we played a significant role in changing it. Chris, what, when you think about your business and it could maybe the core of what you do, like what, what drop, you know, is it, Hey, I really have this love for real estate. Like where does the passion and love come to have these late nights and, and to, have this vision and go out and put everything on the line for some of the, you know, like a project like that? Like, where does that all come from? I think it comes, I mean, just fundamentally, I think it's how some people are wired and not everybody's wired this way. But I remember when I bought my first house, I thought, well, if I can just get to 10 houses, like I've, I'm set. And then you get to 10 houses and <laughs> and as soon as you get there, you enjoy it. Like, I don't even know if you enjoy it because now that you have 10, you need 20 and is like you never really arrive at where you think you're going to arrive to. The, the journey kind of is the destination. I figured that out pretty early on that every time I kind of set my life is like, if I can just get to this point, everything will be okay, or I will have done what I needed to do. You really just realize that that's just another step in the journey. I think if if the journey ended, we wouldn't see companies like Amazon and Apple and all these things. They would have ended way before. Right. Um, and that's kind of the entrepreneurial spirit is like it, it never really ends. And so I love real estate while we have a big development here in Fort Worth. And that's kind of what uh, we're thought of in the community. I'd say 80 percent of our company actually uh, invests in real estate outside of Fort Worth, buying commercial properties and um, operating them really well, specifically industrial. Um, don't talk about it a whole lot, but We've raised two funds and invested in over 40 venture capital early stage companies in Silicon Valley through some people I know up there. And yeah, real estate's been great to me. Um, I love it. There's never a dull moment. There's always a deal to be done. You never quite, you know, quote unquote, get there. And it's it's a long term. It's a long term game. Um met phenomenal people and look being in texas and dfw and is been a bright spot if you're in the industry uh real estate in texas has done extremely well and um there's no really sign of slowing down anytime soon i don't even think COVID could slow down the real estate market in texas just right. from a this is a place people are going to be moving to and a place they want to be for a long time to come and i don't see any end in sight to that so yeah, I think real estate, I'll be in it for a long time. I have other uh, dreams and thoughts of what I could do in business. But for now, I'm putting all those in real estate. Love it. The uh, you, We've talked, hit on COVID-19 a little bit just to, to kind of address it for what it is. One of the themes we've been talking a lot about on this podcast is like, yeah, that's a that is a defining moment. Oh, I mean, yeah. we're all going to remember where we were and what we did over those ninety days and what it looked like six months from now, a year from now, et cetera. Couldn't agree with you more that uh, we're very blessed to be in the Metroplex going through this because there's a lot of places that were hit a lot harder. But as you think through that, and and I think you've had some some phenomenal guests on your podcast that have hit on this too. It's like the old economy versus the new economy. Mm -hmm. And we could spend four hours on that. But as you as you think about that with this sort of wedge that created that, A, what do you see on the horizon outside of, of what you're doing with, with Fort Capital, but then also how it affects you guys? Yeah, I think about it a lot. I think the pandemic and COVID in a way it poured gas on a lot of fires. So it accelerated a lot of trends that were already happening. So coming out of these, the trends that kind of maybe would benefit from something like this, like if you just take the state of Texas, you know, you're, you're hearing about a lot of migration from California and New York, other states that have handled it differently and that are much more dense and have, you know, more dense populations. The trend of Texas was already happening. That might have been accelerated. You know, I think about like industrial, um, I always say like, you know, for every, there, there's so many things I say probably around industrial, but for every billion dollars of online sales, there's a 1.25 million square foot need for industrial. So if you just simply took the stance of, yeah, if you just took the stance of, 
uh, even pre-COVID, are people going to be ordering more online over the next 20 years or less online? That's like an easy way to maybe make a bet on industrial. And then COVID hits and people are forced for 90 days to basically do everything online, not just shop, but you know now you hear of Zoom and all these other things. Um, but maybe an interesting thing is there's a big generation, you know, the over 65ers that, that never really adopted online and didn't shop on Amazon. They still went to the grocery store and did things how they did when they were kids. That's what people do. Um, well, they were forced to learn online and there's like a new, there's 20 to 30 million new people that will probably change their habits and not go back, which makes the online business more robust. How I think about the the pandemic, and I've talked to a lot of business owners, the, the unemployment is, is a tragedy. The good news is that there's a, there's a government program to pay them. And I think a lot of those jobs will come back. But a lot of companies figured out in 90 days that they could get the same amount of work done with less uh, people. Mm-hmm. And so there will some, be some jobs that don't come back purely because maybe they shouldn't. I wouldn't say they shouldn't have existed to begin with, but once you were able to be given kind of this 90-day window to figure out new processes and adopt new technology, you realized you didn't need them. But you don't really get the opportunity to ever do that if a pandemic or something this severe happens. Now, having said all that, there's all these new businesses that are going to start out of this. I mean, commercial sanitation businesses are growing four or 500% in the last 90 days. There, you might not go back to the job you had, but there will be new, a whole new economy created from it. And if you anchor into, well, the only way that we're successful coming out of this is if we go back to where we were 90 days ago, you could be disappointed. But if you anchor into, let's embrace like the change that, that we received and let's kind of focus on how we can take a part in joining the companies that, that maybe have tailwinds behind them or opportunities that'll come in the future. It's kind of, I don't want to, like, I don't want to say that what's happened isn't tragic because it is, but it's kind of exciting that there's kind of a new way of doing things and we'll figure that out. And the truth of the matter is we've done it for hundreds of years. I mean, if you had asked people in the early 1900s, uh, if they wanted a car, they would have said, no, we just need faster horses. Um, it happens over and over and over and over again. And this is just another point in history where people are going to innovate. And again, we worked hard the last 10 years in a bull market, but I wouldn't say, and you can say you grinded, but when you put people's back really against the wall and you unleash American potential, which were the greatest uh, hub spot of innovation on the planet, I think you're going to see a new generation of people born that have a fire in their belly that, that that we haven't seen in a long time. And you give a bunch of Americans some fire in their belly and no freaking telling what's coming over the next 10 years, but I'm excited to see whatever does. Um, it's tough to it's tough to say that while we're still in it. Right. But it'll happen and history tells us that it happens every single time. Well, when we were catching up, you said, you know, b- because of Zoom calls and you're constantly looking at yourself and other people looking at you like there may be a boom in plastic surgery. There's probably a, a pretty good baby boom coming too. I mean, everybody's yep. been at home together yeah. for a long time. Oh yeah. Um, and so, so maybe the, the COVID-19 creates our next baby boom and, <laughs> and, and maybe they do have that fire in their belly. I agree. And, and I think if you look at some silver linings, um, if there can be, we're going to be a cleaner society and there's not anything wrong with that. I mean, you know, masks in America are like really weird and awkward and we're, they're kind of scary, if that makes sense. But you go to other countries and if you have a cold, you like put on a mask to go to work that day just to not right. cough all over your co-workers. Uh, in America, we just like sneeze on people and cough and do whatever. There's Hygiene will get better, which probably means health long term will get better. and if there is ever a real pandemic that happens with something that is super lethal, we're kind of prepared for it now. Like we kind of got a test trial. Right. Um, so there's some silver linings that'll come out of it. It's it's hard to see them all in the short term. You always see them in hindsight, but I don't know. I'm, I'm super bullish and optimistic about the next 10 years. That's awesome. And I think it's such like a 
you have the conversation like we're having right now where you have someone like you has that perspective and then you have that other group that doesn't have that perspective, which keeps saying, well, I just want to go back to normal or what normal was. Well, you know, that's not the reality of what we're going to ever be back to. And then there's, you know, I, I've had some people where they're just like, well, I'm going to wallow in in all the challenges and, you know, to hear someone like you and say, Hey, well, I'm going to go out and I'm going to go grab the opportunity. Right. I mean, that's, it's just, I love that perspective. Yeah. I think the one, it's just, that's the entrepreneur spirit. And we know that not everybody's built that way. I mean, that's, that's, I don't know if it's DNA or genetics or whatever, but that's just, you're not going to, if everybody on the planet was a, was a me, this place would blow up. I mean, you need people (laughs) that, that aren't, uh, if everybody was Elon Musk, you know, the, the the planet wouldn't work. You need a balance of both. I think my only comment to that is if there is something that I do believe needs to uh, change in a significant way, it's this media, social media culture that's been created where you can't disagree with anything. Every day there's a crisis and there's a flavor of the day and you're shamed into, you know, you have to participate in it. And, and people are addicted to fear. I mean, if, if people, if news stations just gave the good news that happens in the world every day, of which there's tremendous amounts of good news, people live longer now, people you can get across the globe in a day used to take a year. Uh, If you look at things over the long term, we make progress, but that doesn't sell. And so what we tend to see on a day-to-day basis is this horrible world that's just, you know, everything's terrible and blinking red lights of crisis. And the, ma- the media, the mainstream media sells drama, not necessarily facts. Right. Um, you're glued to uh, the drama and we're hitting this inflection point where it's just for, like, I don't, you don't really don't talk to people that don't listen to the news or get off social media. And they're not just like disgusted by the last 30 minutes of what they consumed. And I don't really believe that they believe it, but it's so shocking and so addicting and so part of you that if you're going to participate in the madness, it allows people that are optimistic that aren't participating in the, ma- the madness to keep kind of on their journey. And so I'm not saying like this isn't a fake news rant or anything like that. I just encourage people to like um, not make your daily source of inspiration whatever's on your iPhone. Like uh, I tell my wife, when in this day and age, you pull out your iPhone and you're putting yourself at risk to have your mind hijacked for the rest of the day. Like you don't know what you're going to see. You don't know what comment's going to piss you off. You don't know... And it's hard uh, not to get go down kind of a, a tunnel. And so, you know, I'm not on social media. I'm on Twitter, but I'm not. I've been on Instagram or Facebook for a couple of years. And I would just tell you, I'm. I feel a lot happier about it. I don't under. I don't know all the issues going on in the world. And the truth is, if you ask most people what the issue was two weeks ago, they have no freaking clue. They only can tell you what's right in front of them. Donald Trump's been president for four years. It's been four years of crisis in the White House. But if I asked you to name 10 of them, you could probably only name the one or two that's gone on in the last couple of weeks. You don't remember what happened two years ago. Even in the moment, you felt like it was the biggest deal on earth. Right. So there's my rant. No, I mean, it's 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 a crossroads. And, and you know, we need a whether it's it's our generation or the one before us or the three or four coming behind us, like truth seekers. Yeah. Right. I mean, everybody just wants this surface level BS and they think that's good. Oh, I got it. I can move on. Yeah. And it's just sensationalized again for, you know, our, our sources for most people are the television and they're running a business. It's all about ratings and viewership and it's turned to just it. I don't get anything out of watching it except maybe the weather. For sure. Yeah, I, I mean, and the amount of... And, and they're never right. <laughs> exactly. When, and, and the amount, like, how do you form an opinion anymore if you don't spend any time thinking for yourself? And the amount of information that's out there, I mean, if you just took COVID in general, it's like half the country feels like it was a, you know, I don't want to say fake. Uh, it, it's real. It's a real virus. But half the country thinks it was the wor- most biggest overreaction ever. And half the people still won't walk outside their front door. 
and the, the misinformation around it all is tremendous. But the truth is, and this is my own opinion, that's what the media is good at, is putting out lots of ways to look at things, and that keeps people engaged. If we just gave one source of truth, that would be boring and nobody would care anymore. It That excites people, all the different ways to look at it. And this person said this, and this graph said that. And if you just kind of take a step back and just kind of you know form your own opinion, I don't know, it's a much easier way to live and a lot less stressful. Well, and, and Chris, you're like that comment of form your own opinion, I think is it's as sad as it is. Sometimes it's it's really hard for people to actually do that anymore and actually sit down and think, this is what I believe. This isn't what I just read on Facebook. This is what my true worldview and beliefs are on this situation. They they listen to, hey, I'm I'm on the you know the left side or the right side, and that's where I'm going. Well, did you really break that down? For sure. And politics is fun, is is meant to create the the drama. Um, it, we can't all agree on everything, or else it would be boring. And and we drama is created when you draw lines in the sand. I think I, I watched this documentary on Netflix the other day called The Creepy Line, and it was about the algorithms that Facebook and Google use to, you know, how, how their algorithms work. And it was really interesting because. If you really think about it, some of these people now spend four or five day, four or five hours a day on their phone, and they're consuming content through these uh, through these companies. And they're really like the companies set the agenda for what that person's day is going to be like. Um, and not everybody sees the same information. You see what's good for you. You see what confirms your already beliefs, and they keep doubling down on it. Google. Google has Google Maps, Google Search, Google Chrome, Google. They're all free, but you're not paying anything, but I promise you, you're paying something. They know where you're driving. They know where what you're searching. They know who you're emailing. They know this, and they, have, they can come up with, what do we need to put in front of this person today to kind of keep them on this journey that we've been tracking for the last 10 or 12 years? That was just kind of an interesting thing when I thought about it is like, if 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 your source of truth is through the internet, your the the algorithms are strong enough now that they'll just keep putting the next like thing in front of you, and you just kind of keep chasing it and doubling down on that belief. But what I search might not be the same thing that you see when you search it. It was just an interesting way to think about it. How did these companies? How are these companies worth a trillion and a half dollars when you pay nothing to use them? So, so going back to, to kind of the new economy and, you know, your, your specialization and around real estate, I mean, Bob and I've talked a lot about this, you know, we've collectively got, you know, north of a million square feet that our offices occupy across the United States. Um, we're not trying to win the race back to the offices because, you have a lot tech, more risk. Tech, we got a lot more risk, and we're in a people business. But technology-wise, we were set up to do this and and be able to pivot and work from home. But as we think about bringing people back, and you know, whatever phase you are in the in the lease in our Chicago office or Dallas office or LA office or whatever, to your point about the analysis of like the workforce and how many employees that you need, I think. We're going to be doing an analysis and probably a lot of other people are. And how much square footage do you need? Um, do you have alternating days where, you know, Bob's team is coming in on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, the first and the third weeks of the month. And Michael's team is coming in Tuesday, Thursday, and you flip flop. And so instead of 100,000 square feet, you got way more hoteling spaces. You're more spread out to your point of, of what that looks like. And you're in 40,000 square feet. I mean, what, what is your viewpoint on that? Yeah, I have a super contrarian opinion on it. I think this is short-mindedness. Yeah. Uh, I think I was joking the other day, I'm going to start a company that's going to go rip out all the plexiglass that all these businesses are going to put in and realize six months later they that, don't need they it. Don't need it. <laughs> um, I love it. People don't like working from home. Uh Long term, I think it's been an experiment. If you have kids and a family, it's extremely hard. Um, if you're not in a good relationship in a marriage, it's extremely hard. You and Bob are great friends because you've met in person 
you've shared experiences together, you know that you're going to see that person. Uh, if you look at the best business people, um, what they're surrounded by is this incredible network. And that network was not created through a bunch of Zoom calls. Um, it almost, the Zoom to me feels like over the long term, the relationships get less and less tight. And I think, again, it's, we're living in a, in, we're, li we're living in the moment, but the th like we're social creatures. The people that will win out of here will be more engaged with people, will wanna be around people. And while that doesn't mean, I'm not saying you can't work from home or that remote doesn't work. Remote still happens in an office, by the way. The desire, when we let our team come back, they, I mean, they were thrilled. The first time I ate at a restaurant with my friends, it was the, like, it was like Christmas. Uh, people <laughs> want to be around each other. And so I think in the short term, I think for companies like y'all, every big corporation, it's more of like the legal risk and the political risk of coming back. In the short term, I think people will redesign and think about things, but long term, and I think we can be smarter about it. I don't think everybody needs to be in the office five days a week. I'm not saying that at all. We, we, that's why we have laptops. That's why it's a culture thing. If, if, if you, um, you can spread out and keep the team really solid, but this idea that everybody's like never really going to see each other and we're just going to do business through zoom again, it's where I'm like more, more power to, to me. Cause I'm going to be out shaking hands and meeting people and giving them a hug and a high five and, I can't see a world where that doesn't continue to win. Now, what happens over the next couple of years is there's risk and all that. That's a totally different story. But I think long term, the human interaction is going to be important and that's going to have to take place in some type of office environment, even if it's different. I don't know if that answered your question. No, it does 100%. And, you know, in, in an industry that whether it's it's technology or other mediums, um, they try to sort of commoditize what we do yeah i mean bob and i spend an unbelievable amount of time of our day making sure that doesn't happen this yeah. is a relationship business this is a people business we do care we are going to come see you so i couldn't agree more yep. and and I, I think you're right and i hope that it is just a short-term thought and strategy or a reaction right like they're going to see past that and go no we we need to get back to to collaboration and people being together because the zoom call, they, I mean, we call it zoomed out. Like you yeah. just by four or five or six or eight, or how many do you a day? I'm so much more tired than if I had flown on an airplane, driven to a meeting, yeah. done three or four of them, gone to dinner that night, got back to the hotel. Yeah. Zoom wears me out more. It wears you out. It's hard to build relationships. I don't think people think about like, uh, getting promotions and, it's going to be easier to promote the person down the hall from you than it is the person you never see and just talk to through Zoom. I mean, it's just like, that's human nature. Right. Um, and then the the thing that nobody's really mentioned yet, but you still have to work 40 hours a week if you're from home or wherever. Uh, there's labor laws in this country. And if you watch a lot of the polls about like how people have spent their day at work from home, I'm not saying everything has to be eight to five, but I think you see over time this, uh, this idea that, you know, because it's harder to be held accountable, you start finding people that aren't putting in the work and they're gaming the system. And then you get into the labor law rule. And that doesn't mean you have to be in an office to follow the labor law rule. It just means if you tell people like, we'll never have to see you again, we'll only talk through Zoom and you're just going to be at home every day. I think that's going to create some some labor law challenges. And then the the answer to that is put a tracker on their computer so you can see all their computer usage. So big brothers, we're a culture of trust, but we don't trust you a ton. So we're going to put trackers on your computer and watch, get a report every night about how long you're on your computer. What a way to kill culture right. about, about as quickly as possible. And I've seen the repercussions already from business owners that did it during the pandemic and the the, it's not a positive. It, it could work for certain situations and at certain times, but people don't want to feel like they're being monitored. And if you have to feel like you have to monitor someone, that's again, that's just a, that's a person issue to begin with. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting. I've been hearing 
you know, a lot of people say, and I, I've been arguing this and saying that, well, no, everybody's just as productive outside of the office. I'm like, I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. Some of these calls that I've been on, I'm, I'm going, we weren't having these calls before. What are we doing on this call? Why are we having this now versus before? Is it just to check in? 10-minute Zoom meeting, eight minutes of figuring it out, getting the camera to work, making sure it's not all staticky, two minutes of talk, and then it's it's done. And again, I think we'll move to a world where some of our people work from home one or two days a week. And I think that's productive because they're part of the flow. But once they're kind of out into the abyss for long periods of time, it's like what you said, you're having meetings just to like check in and make sure that things are they're understanding their workload. And I don't know, we're only 90 days into it. I just, I can't see it getting better the longer it goes on. And not to say people can't work from home or remote. It just has to be centered around an office environment. And look, you read about some tech companies that are going fully remote. There are industries where, you know, coders, software engineers, they like being alone all day. They don't want to be bothered. That works. But there's a lot of industries where the, the people need to be around the people. One thing I did want to hit on, because I know you're passionate about it, with the employees that you've recruited into your company, like talk about how you think about culture, how you define culture, and, and then how that emanates down to the workforce. And, and as you get bigger, right, how do you keep that yeah. and, and continue to grow? It's a good question. Cultures, it's in, in a lot of ways, I call it, it's kind of the magic. It's it's hard to necessarily define it. It's why every, or not define it, but it's it's why everybody's is different a little bit. When we started for it, I had culture to me at the beginning was just like a something I read in my business textbook that we needed one. And I thought I solved that by putting like a mission statement and some core values on our website. And that was our culture. And then you just start realizing like you kind of hire the people that you like when it's all said and done, you kind of have the team that you deserve and you deserve your team. If, if you put no emphasis on uh, making your team better over time, the type of people that want to be a part of something like that is what you deserve. Uh, when you treat your people poorly um, or you take advantage of a situation eventually the people that are the ones left standing are what you deserve. And a good culture repels the, the, the people, r- repels the, the type of people that you wouldn't want, and it attracts the people that you would want. And it's something that you've kind of fight for every day. Your culture is either getting better every day or worse every day. And it's getting better every, as the people get better and as you hire new people. But we also know that it takes one bad apple to screw up, can screw up a lot of people. And so the amount of effort we put before we hire someone and we spend, we get told all the time, like your interview process takes forever. And we're like, yeah, because once you're here, we hope that you're going to be here forever and we'd rather catch it before you're here than than after. So the the culture is just like, who are the people that you want to over time work with And how are you going to build an environment that's going to attract more people like that to want to work for you? And um, again, there's not one right culture. It's just what environment do you want? And you're never going to have it uh, like you're always working on it, um, but it requires a lot of work. And so I I think at, at its easiest, I just think about it as our culture is strong when it when it repels the people that we don't want to work with away and it attracts more people that we do want to work with and that's just not the people in the office that's our vendors that's our bankers our insurance providers the whole deal is you you want to naturally attract people that make the system better and not have to work as hard getting rid of the people that make it worse it it naturally just kind of pushes people out and that's where it gets back to values. If everybody shares a certain amount of values, whether we're hiring a new contractor on a job or whatever, if it's obvious those people, you know, are not honest or, you know, they're they're not very flexible. Like one of our core values is being agile. Like in a world like today, you got to be willing. You can't just anchor into one thing. You got to be willing to 
to be agile, being accountable, being resilient, being driven. I mean, if I walked you through our office, I could say all of our people share that common value. And it would be it would be weird to bring someone into the office that doesn't. They would stand out like a sore thumb immediately. Um, but that's taken years and we work on it every day. And you're kind of always working on it, whether you realize it or not. And hiring one person into the company that doesn't share those values it reinforces the values that you do have, but it makes it um, to where that person couldn't exist. You couldn't coexist for very long without the whole company being like, why the hell is this person here? Or, And if you're accepting of those new values, then you're accepting to co- having your culture change. Right. Um, and that's what happens to a lot of companies that go that don't you know, continue growing and getting better is they kind of solve for the lowest common denominator. Um, And the greatest companies have a really high standard and really high values, and they don't break them. Hey, Chris, earlier you mentioned, you know, we were talking about your wife and calling you on your BS. Do you have people that within your your shop that can call your BS on your leadership team, or do you kind of enforce that or try and get that openness with your team? Yeah, my, my business partner is pretty good about it. I would say um, probably the one uh, thing I think about more than anything, and this is, again, we're doing this today. It wouldn't have necessarily been something I said years ago, but humility is the ultimate superpower. It's being willing to, like I told the team in a team note I wrote this morning, I was like, I couldn't have been any more wrong about where the uh, economy would be today when I first wrote you guys 90 days ago. Um, And I think as a leader, being really uh, having a lot of humility and showing people, it's almost like I love telling people when I've gotten something wrong because it shows that you're human. And just kind of creating that, it allows, um, it's easier for people to call me on my BS because they know that I'm really accepting of like, being called on BS outside of the company, uh, YPO has been an extremely big part of my life, but I get to sit with eight other business owners for five hours every month and they have no problem calling me on my BS. Um, so it's, it's easier said than done. Again, just given my position, I know there's people that will not call me on my BS, but over time, if you're willing to just, again, part of your culture, have humility, ask for feedback. Sometimes people won't give it, but if you'll ask for it, they'll give it. But then taking it and not using it as like a weapon against somebody or, uh, you know, that that's, I think a lot of people want the negative feedback to be used as ammo, like down the road. And I hope my people would know that um, as long as they're being honest, even if I don't like what they have to say, it's certainly never coming from a place of, uh, you know, trying to get an extra, you know, weapon or something like that. No, that's great perspective. Um, as we're kind of coming up on an hour here of, of getting inside the head of Chris Powers, um, you know, from, from my perspective, Chris, hey, thank you for coming on. Uh, you B, it's been really fun to watch your career blossom and see uh, i can't wait to see what you do with it from here you know certainly some some things that that stood out today i love the the comment we were talking about you know if people a hundred years ago if you asked them if you wanted cars you you know they said we just need faster horses i, yeah. I think that's great yeah. great perspective yep. the people that win stay engaged you have the team that you deserve that one really hit. Yep. Uh, and then, you know, your last one, humility is the ultimate superpower. You know, that that's what we're looking to to explore and uh and get down in on this podcast. It's just it's the truth, right? It's those defining moments. And you've certainly had them. And thank you for sharing with us. I appreciate you having me on. If I could say one more thing on the tying it to kind of the media, social media culture, and then humility is what it's breeding right now is a lack of humility. You go on to post everything you did right, or it's, or everything, uh, you're calling everybody else out on what they're doing wrong. You very often don't find somebody that goes on and says, this is what I did wrong today. Um, it's a, it's, and so I just think a lot about that, but 
I just had to get that out there. Um, yeah, thank you for having me on. Uh, I'm glad that uh, my podcast could be an inspiration for this. This is an awesome conversation. I love the way y'all kind of thought through it. And these are the conversations I think that people actually really are dying to hear, um, not just with me, but with anybody in general. And, and Chris, give us a plug too on your podcast so we can direct folks there as well. Yes. And I want to have you all on my podcast, which will we'll get um, scheduled. Uh, it's the Fort Podcast, uh, or you can follow me on Twitter at Fort Worth Chris um, or our company's website, www.fortcapitallp.com. Perfect, man. Thank you so much, Chris. Always a pleasure to catch up. Thanks for coming on. You bet. Thanks, Bob. Thanks, Michael. Really enjoyed it. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of The Climb. If you enjoyed the episode, please consider subscribing. And if you know someone who you would think would enjoy the podcast, feel free to share this with them. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode.